Good morning. If you'd like to uh, turn back with me to James chapter 1, uh, verse 9 to 18, and we're on page 1,213. So please take a, a pew Bible and have a look at James at the end of the New Testament. Folks, lovely to be with you. As you realize already, my accent's not from Bangor, unless Bangorians have had a true uh, change in their accent. I'm from Kilkenny originally. Uh, I've been assistant in Bangor for the last two years. Um, I have three young girls and a wife, um, and our girls are picking up a Northern Ireland accent fairly quick as they attend school uh, in Bangor. It's lovely to be with you this morning. It's my second time in Kirkpatrick. We were here just after Easter. Um, and we had a week's holiday, so we came here and we're with you. It's lovely to be with you again. So please turn with me to, to James chapter 1. And let, let me pray for us as we come to God's word this morning and hear from him. Let's pray. Father, we believe that this is your living and active word. And we pray this morning as we hear your voice speak, as we open up the scriptures, Father, may it be a living and active word as it pierces our heart, our thoughts, and our mind. And may we leave this place having met with you, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever have uh, those moments in your life when you think to yourself, will I still be following Christ a year, five years, ten years, fifteen years from now? Do you ever think to yourself, will the trials and testing of life cause me to sail off course in Christian terms? Will the temptations within my own heart and life cause me to abandon the God I love? They're serious questions, aren't they? And they're often honest questions and internal questions that we often ask ourselves. And it leaves us with a sense of unknown, a sense of uneasiness and discomfort. And so we quickly brush them aside and we leave them for another day. But they're real questions for you and I this morning. And they're real questions for the likes of Jennifer, who's married. She has a good husband and a couple of school-aged children She has, over the past few years, experienced the heartache of seeing her mum pass away because of illness. During that period of difficulty, her faith held strong in God. However, there are moments throughout her day when she's fearful for the future, wondering, what if I get sick or get diagnosed with something? What if something happens to the children and I can't cope with it and I lose my trust in God? She wonders if she'll be able to cope able to keep trusting God in the testing and trials of life. Or take Marcus, he's in his mid-twenties, he's full of life, looking forward to university and finishing it next year or so. His hope is that he'll get a job and start earning a few pounds. This optimism is in stark contrast to Marcus's Christian life. He's often plagued by doubts regarding his faith. He feels he's very inconsistent in his Christian walk. And if you ask him why... He's honest and he'll tell you, I struggle with temptations and he's constantly sinning in a specific area of his life. He's become fed up of making bargains with God, promising never to fall into the sin again, only for a few weeks to pass and he's back to square one. He feels defeated and struggling to see how he will overcome these temptations. Or take John, who's a good bit older than Marcus and Jennifer, John has been brought, he brought up his family. He's finished work in the last couple of years and he's entered what he, called, what he hates to call retirement. John, throughout his life, has been a faithful follower of Jesus over those years. His motivation in the Christian life has been bringing up his family well, to be a witness for Christ at work. But now he's entered retirement, he's lacking purpose 
And if he's honest, he's lacking motivation in his Christian life. What does John or James chapter 1, verse 9 to 18, have to say to the likes of Jennifer, Marcus, and John? What does it have to say to you and I about living or contending with trials and temptations of life? What do these verses teach us about who God is and what it is to keep going in the Christian faith? Let's come this morning and hear what God has to say to us this morning. And I want to look at it under three, three headings. The three headings broadly are this, the trial of life, the temptations of life, and the giver of life. Firstly, the trials of life. You see it there in chapter 1, verse 2. Have a look. You'll see that God's word tells us whenever you face trials of various kinds. It's a blank statement, isn't it? That you will face trials of various kinds. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, defines trials in the following helpful sentence. He says this, Trials refer to any difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ. Any difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ. So trials can cover a variety of things, can't they? Such as physical illness, the death of a loved one, financial struggles, relationship breakdown. But the point to take from verse 2 is this, that you will meet these trials in your Christian life as a follower of Jesus. There is nowhere to be found in the scriptures a promise that the Christian life will be easy sailing, health, wealth, and happiness are not guaranteed in the scriptures or for the Christian life. And for many of you sitting here this morning, you will know all too well the trials and testings of life, maybe over the last year or over the last number of years. But we see here in James that the trials of life are also found in verse 9. We see that in verse 9, James is addressing the issue of trials among those who are poor and those who are wealthy. And he does it in a dramatic way by turning upside down what you would expect him to hear. James writes, have a look at it in verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances should take pride or boast in his high position. And the rich should boast or take pride in his low position. This is not what you're expecting to hear. This is the total opposite of what you and I would expect. He tells the poor and the rich to boast or to take pride. The rich are to take pride in their humiliation and the poor in their exaltation. You see, James is writing to these believers in the church where there are those who have and those who have not. It's easy to understand how having little could be a trial, isn't it, for those who are Christians? always wondering where the next meal is going to come from, stretching the pennies for the coming months, getting used to hand-me-downs, or just that deep-down longing to have more. And this is that extra little bit to spend. Surely a life like this would be a test or a trial for those struggling. But James reminds them that they are to boast in their exaltation. What do he mean by that? Have a look at chapter 2. Just flick your page over to chapter 2, verse 5 for a moment. And here's what what James is meaning by this exaltation. In chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Those who are poor. It may be wealth. It's probably meaning more a spiritual poor. And he says that they have been rich in faith and inherited the kingdom of God. That is what you are to boast in. But what about the rich? The rich throughout the book of James are not seen in a good light. 
They're accumulating wealth. They oppress the poor. They drag them into court. And James' argument in verses 9 to 11 is that the rich are to boast in their low station. And he gives reasons for adopting this attitude by looking at the flowers of the field. I don't know if you did A-levels English, but if you were living in the Republic of Ireland, you would have had to learn poems upon poems for your English leaving cert. And this is one of the poems, which I still remember to this day. I'm not going to recite it off. I have it written. William Wordsworth penned the poem, the famous one called Daffodils, which goes like this. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way. They stretch in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The image of daffodils creates a beauty and a moment of glory and amazement. But we all know that the flowers of the field wither away. They're scorched by heat, maybe not in Northern Ireland, but they go as quickly as they come up. And so it is with those who are rich. They pass away and their possessions and material gain is gone, like the daffodils or like the flower of the field. And James uses this image of the flower of the field to illustrate to the rich that they are to boast in their humble station, which is the transitory nature of their wealth. Their spiritual state is of more importance. And surely the testing and trial for the rich is that they will not find their significance in their wealth and material possessions, but rather in their spiritual state before God. These are genuine trials for the believers of James's day, and the same is true for us today. However much the recession has affected our wealth and our disposable income, we cannot say we're living in deprivation and want in Northern Ireland compared to other countries, or even within a church denomination We are a well-off denomination. Our testing, our trial, is one that will be connected with our wealth and our resources and our possessions. And the question is, will this trust, will this trial, be the very thing that makes us drift away from being faithful to Christ? Will it be the very thing which causes us to be more obsessed with accumulation of wealth and reputation than the building of the kingdom of God? If you're poor, boast in your exalted position in Christ. If you're rich, take pride in the fact that your wealth will fade away like the flowers of the field. And the thing is to hold on to your wealth loosely. But the things of Christ will last forever. They're the trials of life. What about the temptations of life? Have a look at verses 13 to 15. In verses 13 to 15 of James chapter 1, James is helping these Christians understand the source the nature and the process that is involved in temptation. You see, every trial, every test carries with it a temptation to sin. And it's important to grasp what is going on when temptations occur. James uses a literary device which creates an imaginary individual in these verses who is being tempted. And they say in their temptation, God is tempting me. James quickly and emphatically puts this to bed in verses 13 to 15, when he says, let no one say, have a look at it, that God is tempting me because God cannot be tempted with evil and God tempts no one. 
The argument by James is this, is that God can only be understood if we grasp who God is. And when we grasp who God is, we understand that he is holy, without sin or blemish or perfect in all that he does. So if evil has no hold or influence on God, how can God use evil to tempt others? Once James removes from God this tempting of others, he then goes into verses 14 and 15 to lay out clearly the source, the nature and the process of temptation. And he does this using two metaphors or pictures. The first picture is this. Do you see it there in verse 14? And it's taken from the fishing world. I don't know if you're into fishing, but if you fished for fish, you will know that it is necessary to have a colorful and attractive fly or bait with a piece of metal which is shiny and often attractive to fish. It entices, especially fly fishing, if you swing it over the river, It'll go back and forth, shining in the sun, flicking the metal with the colorful fly on it. And it entices and lures the fish onto it. And the hook enters the mouth of the fish and it is dragged in. And James uses this metaphor to illustrate how we as Christians can be lured or enticed into a snare by our own desires. Here is God's word speaking reality, isn't it, to us today? Because we can all identify it with it. We have desires or longings for different things. It begins in our hearts and our minds. And then we're enticed or lured by its desire. And in verse 15, James changes the metaphor, the picture, to that of conception and giving birth. And so desire is given life. It's given birth. And then it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings about death. How true this is, isn't it? Let's go back to the example of the rich and the poor from verses 9 to 11. Imagine you're poor and your desire for more is there. I want more money. I want more of this. And that's understandable. But that desire drives you to claim more expenses on your meals or mileage form at work. The desire has given birth to sin and it leads to destruction of your own conscience, of your relationship with others, of your own reputation and before God. Or take sexual desire, it according to God, should be expressed in a particular relationship through marriage between one man and one woman. Yet a sexual desire can lead to sexual relations with others outside of that. Or it can lead to pornography or fantasy. Desire is conceived, gives birth to sin, which causes death to your marriage, relationships, or it destroys your mind and damages your desires and relational capacity. We see the reality of God's word, that this is the way sin works. This is the way temptation works. And verse 16 says, have a look at it. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In the midst of trials and testing, it is vital to understand the process of how temptation works. Remember, it is not God who is tempting you. God doesn't tempt you, for he cannot be tempted with evil. But rather, it is your own desires giving birth to wrongful and sinful longings and actions which lead to sin and death. Do not be deceived. It is so easy, isn't it, when trials and testings of life come in that we deceive ourselves and think our hope, our comfort, our assurance can be found in other things that lure and entice us. And in the end, we're left damaged, destroyed, and feeling like death. That is a major thing to grapple with today. And maybe you're here this morning and you are struggling with those temptations. You can see the reality of that luring and enticing. And the warning from God's word is, 
arrested now. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to continue to be lured and enticed? Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel, I feel like death because I have been lured in. It has destroyed things on me. The Lord is there. Call out to him. Confess it before him. Seek him out in it. But also remember this, that he is the giver of life. James 16 says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, about who God is and what he is like. You see, verse 16 works back, but it also works forward. Verse 16 says about sin, do not be deceived. And then forward into 17 onwards, it says, do not be deceived about who God is. And you see verse 17, it says, God, the father of the heavenly lights, the one who created this world and everything in it, is the one who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And he doesn't change, unlike the movements of the planets, the stars and the moon. They all change. But God does not change. In the midst of trials and testings that will happen to Christians and God's church, these verses reassure us that God is good and that he is the giver of good and perfect gifts. And this is amazingly shown in verse 18. Have a look at it. Where James deliberately uses again the metaphors that he has used before about temptation and conception and birth. He now uses them again here in verse 18. Do you see it? To teach us that God is the one who gives gifts which are good and perfect. Notice in verse 18 that it is true God's own will, his desire, his choice, that he does amazing things. God's word gives life, and God's desire is that there would be a people who are his very own. God gives birth to a new people. These Christians spread out over all the world like you and I here. Through his word of truth, it saves our souls. God's word brings life. It is the instrument by which God brings people to life so that they are the first fruits of his creation. The first fruits of the harvest were those that were given to God. They were the best. They were the first works of the harvest that was gathered in. And they reflect something of what God has done for his people. And so as you look around this morning, as you look at the person beside you, as you look at the believers in church with you this morning, they are God's first fruits, the first fruits of his redemptive work. But there's something more. The God who is generous also gives good and perfect gifts. And you see there in verse 12, which we skipped over, he gives the crown of life, verse 12. I don't know if you followed the presidential campaign in the United States last year, What a circus um, when it's gone, isn't it? And in that presidential campaign, as the conventions of the Republican and Democratic uh, conventions are had, they have these rallying speeches, don't they? And the rallying speeches at those conventions are really to motivate the grassroots of the voting for the ups and downs of the journey ahead. So they give these amazing speeches in order to motivate the grassroots support of of the Democrats and the Republicans. And in verse 12, it is a motivator for us, for the grassroots, for those who live the Christian life. Because in the trials and testings that come, we can often lose sight of one of the goals at the very end. And see what verse 12 says. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see, these verses are pointing forward. It's reminding James's hearers and us here this morning that the person who remains, stand firm, holds out to endure, they are blessed 
for they will receive the crown of life which God has promised. In James's day, the victor in the games or war was given the laurel wreath. It marked them out as the one who had overcome, held on to the end, and they had received their reward. This prize is the incentive to keep going. It will strengthen you in your ongoing life as a Christian, as you await life abundantly, that crown of life. Listen to the words of God as he speaks about this crown of life in other parts. Revelation speaks of it like this with regard to Christ. He said, And I look and behold a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Or take Revelation 14, 14, when it says this, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, uh, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Christ has a crown on his head as a sign of his victory and status as Lord and Judge. That's where he is today, with that crown of life. But notice how the New Testament speaks concerning the believers and the crown of life. Peter says this, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then later on it says this in Revelation, I am coming soon, hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Do you see the connection between the crown that Christ wears and the crown that will be given to his people? You see, we are co-heirs with Christ in Christ. We are in him and so share in all that he has done and will receive. It's an amazing thought that Christ's people will receive the crown of life when he returns, just as he has done. But notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. This afternoon, Arsenal will form a guard of honour at the Emirates Stadium for Manchester United, the newly crowned Premier League champions of 2013 for the 20th time in their history. The captain will receive the Premier League trophy. When it is lifted up into the air, I'm sure many of the players won't think of the dark months or nights back in July and August when they were doing pre-season training. I will put my money on it that they won't be thinking about the times that their muscles ached and their stomach churned up their dinners during several training sessions. But I can tell you this, the League Cup and all its glory was their motivating factor during the last few months of training and matches. And so it is for the Christian. Those trials, those testings will seem of little significance from when God you will receive the crown of life that is promised. But in the meantime, between then and now, the crown of life is used in Scripture to motivate us, to keep going, to resist the urge to give up, because it is a promise for those who hold fast to God. We started this morning by asking about Jennifer and Marcus and John. What would you say to John, who's lost his motivation? Keep going, John. Be motivated by the fact that the crown of life awaits you. Keep living out the retirement, following Christ. What would you say to Jennifer? Would you say lovingly that there will be trials, Jennifer? There will be testing. You do not know what the future holds. Cling on to God. Ask for wisdom, as chapter 1, verse 5 says. He won't find fault with you. 
Ask him to help you in those trials and testings that will come. And what about Marcus? Marcus needs to realize the process that's going on with those temptations. He needs to understand that it is enticing him, luring him, and it will bring destruction. Those desires offer reward, but in the end they are false. Let them drive you to God, Marcus. Let, them t- let God help you struggle through those temptations and take rejoicing in the fact that Christ has broken the stranglehold of sin. But what about you and I this morning? What is your trial and testing at this moment in time? Take courage that the Lord is with you in it, that he is there to give you wisdom to live the Christian life, even though it is very difficult at this moment in time. The trial might be to do with your wealth. The trial might be to do with your poor state. But in all this, we fly to God. We cling on to him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with the temptations, with the reality and destructive nature of them. Don't be deceived about them. Don't be deceived about the process that goes on. But also, do not be deceived about who God is. He is good and perfect and will give you wisdom in those circumstances. Let's just take a moment to respond and contemplate God's word. And then in a moment, I'll introduce our last hymn. So let's just spend a moment of time with God as we respond to his word. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And Father, we pray for those of us who are in the midst of struggles and trials at this time. Father, we pray that you would help us to cling on to you, to continue our trust of you. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Father, help us to give us wisdom, Lord, we pray, to continue walking with you. And Father, for those of us who are struggling with temptations, which have got a grip on our life and we're lured and enticed and we have much death and smell of it around us, Father, we pray and thank you that you can give new birth, that you can give new life, that you can help us with the temptations of life. And Father, we thank you for the motivating factor that, Lord, you're returning and that you will give that crown of abundant life for those who continue to walk with you. Father, we pray this morning and we thank you for your word. We pray as we go to work tomorrow, as we look after children, as we do our normal week next tomorrow morning, we pray that you'd help us to cling on to the God who is good, the one who helps us in the midst of our trials and the one who is there and can help us with our temptations. Father, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.